A family ship will never sink until it's abandoned by its crew. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, I am Andrea, and I am a recovering shit show, and there is a high probability that you are too, so you're in the right place. Today, we are diving deep, or rather diving deeper into one of everyone's favorite topics, one topic that we all have such intimate experience with, abandonment, (laughs) being abandoned, the fear of abandonment, abandonment recovery. And today I am joined by someone who I have deemed to be the queen of abandonment recovery, Susan Anderson. She is a clinical psychologist and she is an author and I actually read a quote from one of her books in a few episodes back. It was the most recent episode with Joe Ryan. Uh, She has lots of books, but my absolute fave is her book, The Abandonment Recovery Workbook. I have so much shit underlined in that book. You need to go and get that book right now. So we talk about all sorts of shit, including her five stages of abandonment, acronymed SWIRL, which she outlines in that recovery, the Abandonment Recovery Workbook. Uh, We talk about what abandonment trauma recovery looks like, and we talk about her emotional bottom, her abandonment trauma bottom aha moment when her husband of 19 years abruptly left her. Uh, which is almost as traumatic as when uh, my boyfriend of of less than a month left me. (laughs) So this conversation really, really fed my soul, and I am hoping that you will have the same experience. I had something else that happened that really fed my soul too. Something profound happened, y'all, a very full circle moment here at this podcast that I have named Adult Child. Now, we all know the tale of two Bryans. And if you do not know the tale of two Bryans, you need to stop whatever you're doing and go listen to episode one right now. But the tale of two Bryans, two guys that I dated named Brian, two uh, alcoholic guys named Brian, Although they were different breeds of alcoholic, I will say. So Brian, number one, he drank every time that we were together, but he never really got drunk. He never seemed drunk. Whereas Brian, number two, he didn't drink every time that we were together. But when he did, it was it was quite the shit show. But these two gentlemen who truly I'm so fucking grateful for both of them, because if it wasn't for these two Brian's, you would not be listening to my words right now. Uh, so yes, thank you, Brian number one and Brian number two. Truly, I I truly mean that. I'm so fucking grateful for both of them. But this last week, actually on my birthday, do I sound older? I had a birthday last week. I am 33 years old. But, uh, on my birthday, I go on the old little thing called Instagram and I see that I have a message from none other than Brian number one. One. Now, let me remind you that I dated Brian number one in 2015. I have not spoken to Brian number one since 2015. So now I'm going to read to you the message that I received from Brian number one. Hello. Hope all is well. I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and have been to 30-day treatment twice since I saw you, and this disease is why I couldn't connect with you, and I am so sorry for that. Your message is connective, truthful, and no doubt helped many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong, and thank you again. (sighs) Lord, guys. (laughs) 
Wow. I have goosebumps. Um, the first thing I just want to say, I don't know if you're listening, Brian, number one, but if you are listening, you are so brave to to send that to me. And truly, that was like the best birthday present that I ever could have received. Gratitude, it, it just, that doesn't even seem like a, a powerful enough word to how I feel when I read that message and each time I read that message afterwards. You know, I was thinking about the way that I felt <laughs> when when you ghosted me or <laughs> when you abandoned me. Thank God that you did. But, um, you know, God, I felt like I was going to die. This person that I had been dating for less than a month uh, broke breaks up with me. And I literally felt like I was going to die. And I became a non-functioning human. I couldn't go to work. I had to have my mom come out and take care of me. And if you had told me then what lay ahead, I would have told you that you were crazy. Well, I guess if you had told me what laid ahead was, there's actually going to be a Brian number two. (laughs) It's going to be even worse and more painful than this Brian number one. But what's going to happen is that you're going to be in so much fucking pain that you are going to be in a place where you are willing to do whatever it takes to heal the unresolved pain of your past. And not only that, not only are you going to embark on this healing journey, but you're also going to embark on this journey to figure out why the fuck you were put on this earth. And that journey is going to lead you to creating a podcast where you get to speak and own your truth, where you get to be your unapologetically authentic, raw, vulnerable, and crazy-ass self, and you will never feel so heard, and you will never feel so seen, and your message will reach thousands of people and change their lives. And on top of that, you're going to receive a message from Brian number one telling you how much you have helped him. So just for anybody that is struggling right now, if you can't see there's no possible way that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I promise you, I promise you that there is. And I promise you that you are going to look back at that pain and you are going to be so grateful for that pain. And you are going to get to use that pain as the fuel to becoming your highest and your very best self and living your highest and your very best life. And I promise you that that will happen. So, yeah, I I responded to Brian number one. He did not respond. What if I got him on the podcast? (laughs) That would be like, that would be really great. Um, Brian number two has also been to treatment a few times since since we've dated as well. So uh, at least the seeds were planted, right? It always starts with awareness. Awareness is always the first step to change. So, yeah, I've been so excited to share this story with you guys. I shared it on the Patreon and with some people, but um, yeah, you can't make this shit up. You know, very soon I'm going to be taking a leap of faith and really just focusing my full attention on this podcast. And there's so much uncertainty. And am I going to be able to pay the bills? Am I going to be living on a tent in the tenderloin? And just, you know, receiving that message from him was just so reaffirming to me that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be and I am doing exactly what I am supposed to be doing. So thank you, Brian, number one, truly from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Um, And you are a wonderful and a brave person. So now for Susan. Oh, but first I have something very exciting to announce. We have merch. This is a merch alert. That's what I've been saying. I want to say merch alert, but I've been saying to myself in my head and out loud by myself, merch alert. So this is an adult child merch alert, y'all. We got t-shirts. We got sweatshirts. We got necklaces and bracelets. We have mugs. We have throw pillows. We have yoga pants. We have broken picker syndrome merch. We have recovering shit show merch. We have former shit show merch. We have welcome to the shit show merch. Merch alert, y'all. 
you can head on over to adultchildpodcast.com slash merch. I will also put that in the show notes. And if you want to order some shit in the next week and get free shipping using the code FREE50, go on over there, buy some shit show merch, buy some broken picker shit show merch, anything. Just go and buy that shit, okay? And as always, you also should go and give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you should also sign up for my Patreon, patreon.com slash adultchild. This is where I hope host really rad uh, peer support groups with some really fucking awesome people. Thanks and love you all. Spending all my nights, all my money going out on the What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So it is my pleasure to introduce Susan Anderson. She is a a psychotherapist. She is the abandonment queen. I mean, I think that's what we're going to call you, the the queen of of childhood abandonment and and abandonment trauma. So welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. So I love your workbook. I was just going back through it and I was looking at all the different things that I highlighted, which there's quite a few. Uh, So many things I want to talk with you about, but I want to talk about you. What is your, let's hear your abandonment story. Well, I was happily in a relationship and I know this is something extraordinary because it tells you a lot about my family history that I even was capable of being in a beautiful relationship for 18 years. But um, he suddenly left me for another woman. So somehow I picked someone who would wait until my most vulnerable hour to leave me. So I had to take responsibility for that and really rip myself into real honesty chunks to get to, to try to figure out why I did that. What is there in me that I that I chose someone who could abandon me like that? And of course, the abandonment was so painful that I survived it barely, barely survived it. So that's what got me started. And it got me started doing research into myself, which I did um, through a couple of exercises, which I share in my program. And um, also research into neurobiology and animal psychology and all kinds of different fields, anthropology, um, epidemiology. I, I mean, I really did a lot of research for three years to try to understand what is the mechanism within us that governs the level of happiness and dysfunction, mm. happiness versus dysfunction. What is that mechanism and what can we do to tune it up to make it work better? And looking for that mechanism and for understanding how to work with it. It was very, very um, intensive research for a period of time. But then when I came up with some answers, that started me on this this whole new bent of writing books on abandonment recovery and running workshops, etc. So uh, I feel like having the response that I I chose this person that had this potential in them. I don't think that that's that would be typically somebody's thought in your shoes. So how the hell did you have that realization? I mean, had you already done some self-discovery work? Because I, I just think that most people that would not be their response was like, well, oh, why did I pick this person? I'm a therapist at the time I had okay, been a therapist okay. in specializing more or less in 
abandonment. I used to think of it as separation anxiety. I, so I specialized in heartbreak, loss, and abandonment, even though I, I had a practice of every different type of person. I worked in a psychiatric hospital. So the people I worked with ran the gamut, gamut but my subspecialty was um, separation therapy. So I knew a lot about people getting themselves into painting themselves into corners in relationship, choosing uh, people who who reenacted scenes from their childhood. I knew all that already. And I felt like such a victim being dumped by someone I loved so much. I was madly in love. And he walked away and left me like yesterday's, you know, trash to be collected by a garbage truck. And it was so painful. And I felt like such a victim that I needed to see myself as a player in it. I Mm. needed to take responsibility. And at first I was forcing it, but then I came upon the realization that, no, no, I chose this person. And there was something sexy about the fact that he had the capacity to walk away from someone. There was something so sexy. It gave him, it was, (laughs) it gave him sort of a little edge, Mm -hmm. a little attractive, hard to get, Edge, somebody who could make unilateral decisions without considering the impact on the other person. So somehow that attracted me to him. I had to take responsibility for that. And if I if I hadn't been able to do that, I think I would still be feeling the feeling like a victim, like a reject, like somebody. I wasn't good enough. I I didn't have enough to keep his interest. I think I would still have a remnant of those feelings. Mm. Mm-hmm. Two things. So first, what were some, what were some red flags throughout those 18 years that this was who he was? Um, he was very considerate and nurturing and kind, not just to me, but to the kids and to other people and animals and, the raccoon that used to come to the side of the house. I mean, he was kind. All the plants liked him a lot, that he was very good to them. Um, So there were very few red flags. But there was something about him always that could always land on his feet. He always took care of himself. He was always comfortable. So I, I somehow knew that he was someone who could just walk away from a a loving person, regardless, just to satisfy his own happiness. And the real clue for that came in his own history. I, I didn't know his history because he kind of distorted it. You Mm -hmm. know, he made it seem like his ex had been too clingy and too needy and too demanding. And it didn't occur to me that maybe she, he was too cold and rejecting and that maybe, Maybe that's why she was being clingy. Didn't occur mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. but it over time I began to think, "Gee, I, I really am not sure about why that relationship. It he, they got divorced. Mm-hmm. Why that happened? What part did he play?" And so I I got, had a sense that he left her, that he had the capacity to leave that woman. Mm-hmm. So it was history that was a red flag as I got to know more of the history and background information. And then what about your childhood? So I would say, what was your, what was your perception of your childhood prior to this? And then what did you learn and realize about your childhood as you started diving into all of this? Well, one of the most important things that makes me an adult child is um, that when I was about seven, eight, nine, I became severely obese. Now today, because there's such an awareness about self-esteem and people of all different body shapes, it's very awkward for me to mention that this is what happened. But at the time, there was nobody in my school or in my town or in my family who was as obese as I was. I was Mm. like completely unique. Mm. And, um, my father was ashamed and wouldn't introduce me to uh, mm. friends. I would, out of kindness, I would hide in one of the bedrooms so he didn't have to introduce me. 
as a way of showing him how much I cared about him. I would hide out so that he, he wouldn't have to be embarrassed. And this was his own weak ego. He was an adult child too. So mm -hmm. this is how it manifested. But that being, being in that position of feeling rejected and un, unworthy and repulsive and self-hating -hate, to an extent that is just really, really incredible that I survived it and that people do survive this. We, mm -hmm. we do. There are so many of us. I don't mean just people who had obesity. I mean, people who had all kinds of issues that we survived these things. But this is this is the uh, adult child, um, the main, the main one, then there, then there were all the other familial things that you can imagine my mother being a little distant, my all of it, um, all kinds of other dynamics that shaped it. But um, I'm absolutely an adult child because I survived that mm. and developed all kinds of ways of coping with that, which are not necessarily all healthy, which I had to, you know, work on and, and learn about as I went. So then when you chose to study psychology and become a therapist, I know a lot of times that includes having to do your own work as you're going through school. So did you did you unpack any of that as you were going through schooling? I never had to unpack it. That that feeling of being on the outside, looking in, um, feeling repulsive, having a ton of shame and embarrassment, um, being self-conscious, um, that all was with me consciously all the time. That experience of being rejected and isolated, I couldn't get any one of my anybody in my entire school to have lunch with me, I had to sit alone in the cafeteria every day. And those days of being that unacceptable and that repulsive that I had to have at my own table. Um, I would think schools wouldn't do that today. They would do something about that. But then that was what happened. And that has never left me. It never became unconscious. The shame, of course, became unconscious, the level of shame, because we, you know, we bury that as much as we can. But I never had to do much work to bring it out. I just had to learn to contain it because I could overwhelm any of my first therapists with my feelings. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I can relate um, as far as so I became like the school slut in the seventh grade. And so, like, I became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with, that, you know, no one wanted to be friends with and, yeah, harassed on a daily basis. Um, so my heart, my heart breaks for you. So then, so then I guess was as you started to work through this abandonment stuff, were there some profound realizations that you had about yourself? Yeah, well... I began to look at everything through the lens of abandonment. You know, the, the words that I used at the time were abandonment, rejection, um, shame, embarrassment, self-hatred, and separation anxiety. Because being in a relationship and having insecurity that that person was going to leave, that I would somehow ruin it, I would sabotage it, that I wasn't enough, that all of a sudden some repulsive quality in me was going to come out like a plume of smoke and the person would run for the hills that that I had an inherent turn off valve that was going to just come on and send them away that that separation anxiety was in most of my relationships I felt it with any authority figure so any boss became um, like a towering figure who had me worry that I was going to be thrust away, fired, you know, abused, bullied. You know, I ha had that always those fears. And of course, those fears became self-fulfilling prophecies, naturally. Um, so, you know, I, I had... Um, separation anxiety and abandonment were the theme when I became a therapist that I had a heightened sensitivity I worked in a hospital with psychiatric patients who were like schizophrenic and bipolar and um, you know 
eating disorder, borderline, all kinds of diagnosis, major depressive episodes that where people couldn't even close their jaw. They were just so depressed. Uh, and I worked with all these people and I saw everything through the lens of separation anxiety. Abandonment may not have been what brought them into the hospital, could have been something they ate, could have been an allergy to a medication. Many things can cause a person to have psychiatric problems besides emotional things. Um, but, but once they were put in a locked ward, you know, once they were sequestered away, it, it ignited their separation anxiety. And then I would be in complete empathy with where they were at. And that empathy became a way of working with them, mm -hmm. uh, something to really connect to them with. And that's how the work of abandonment recovery started, sort of discovering the power of the empathy that connected with the abandonment fear, the separation, and then what you can do with that to move forward to make headway. So I can share my own experience with separation anxiety. So, um, so I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven, I was an only child. Um, and my dad traveled a lot for work, but so it started with me not being able to spend the night away from home. Um, and then I would say around seven or eight years old, I, one night I, I woke up in the middle of the night, uh, in just a panic. Um, and I went into my mom's room and typically in the past, like if I had had a bad dream, like they could just like walk me back to my room and I would be okay. But for some reason that night, like I had to sleep in my mom's bed, you know, and I just kept going and I was hysterical and hysterical. And after the back and forth and back and forth, finally, my dad just threw in the towel and he went and slept in my room. And so what that started was a pattern for the next year and a half of where I would fall asleep in my own bed. And then in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would go and switch places with my dad. Um, and that went on for like a year and a half. Um, eventually they, they sent me to a therapist. And I remember years later asking my mom, uh, did, did you ever tell that therapist that you're an alcoholic <laughs> that you and dad fought all the time? And it was like, no, of course not. You know, of course not. Uh, you know, I was, that's when I became the identified patient. And I remember too, I remember one day walking into school and one of my friends, he said, um, so-and-so told us that you sleep in, in bed with your mom every night. And my, my dad had played tennis that weekend with that person's father. So oh, great. yeah, that was really lovely. So yeah. And then, you know, getting sent to, to rehab at, in eighth grade, just freaked the fuck out freaked the fuck out you're not supposed to call your parents for the first four days i was so hysterical that they let me call my parents that night um anytime i got sent to boarding schools or whatever just yeah like literally just feeling like i was gonna die and so it was actually that feeling when I felt that way after Brian number one when I when I when he broke up with me we had been dating for less than a month and I literally like felt like I was gonna fucking die and that was my first aha moment when I realized that there was no way that the way that I was feeling could actually be about him you know like I had only known him for less than a month and then shortly after that realization, I had the realization that this feeling was a feeling that I had felt often as a child. And that's how I was able to connect that, you know, my issues in romantic relationship was a remnant of my childhood. So. Ugh. Well, I, I, I hear your story and I, I feel your story and it's through this lens of separation and shame. Mm -hmm. Like your mother not mentioning to the therapist that she's mm -hmm. an alcoholic. Well, she's mm -hmm. terribly ashamed of being an alcoholic. So, of course, mm -hmm. she's not mentioning it. Or that she and your father fight and mm -hmm. probably very much related to her alcoholism. 
well, nobody's mentioning that because of embarrassment and shame. And then you sleeping in your mother's bed and all the shame of that and all the shame of any emotional excess, the fear of being afraid and ha having the shame of that. And then having your father tell his tennis yeah. buddy and having it get out. That's just the, the I'm looking at it through the, the lens of here's a self, this fledgling self, this shaky new self trying to have a sense of, you know, calm and stability with that kind of a situation, having all of this shame and embarrassment heaped on her. That's why I turned to drugs and alcohol. <laughs> you know, it was the only way that I could get through it. Um, so one of my favorite things that you talk about in your in the workbook, I want to bring up this quote, um, I could just relate to it so much. Um, you're talking about your friend, um, Peter Yelton. Um, and it says, he says that abandonment is a profound enough trauma to implant an invisible drain deep within the self that works insidiously to siphon off self-esteem from within. The paradox for abandonment survivors is that no matter what they do to build their self-esteem, the invisible wound of abandonment is always working to drain it away. And I could relate to that so much because I was never somebody that hopped from one relationship to the next. Like I would have some pretty, you know, year gaps in between relationships. And during that period of time, like I would be feeling good, you know, like I would be feeling good about myself, high self-esteem, happy. And as soon as I would get into a relationship, all of that went away in an instant, you know, um, and so I guess, though, is it really is it self-esteem or is it more so like self-worth? Because I feel like somebody could perhaps have high self-esteem, but low self-worth. Well, I mean, then we have to get into the semantics of worth versus yeah, esteem. But, yeah. <laughs> but what it really is, that's my favorite quote that you managed to find. in the It's world. so freaking good. My friend Peter, who just came out with that one day, I wrote it down. It was so brilliant. Mm. Peter, um, where's Peter at but, these days? Let's get him on the pod. <laughs> oh, he's still he's still brilliant, coming out with winners all the time. Yeah, I'll I'll tell him you have to connect you invited with him. him. He'd love it. Um, but uh, the invisible drain of self esteem mm. is that when you have abandonment, when it's very primal. I mean, I'd have to get into the whole te technical aspect of it, but. It's very primal. When you have abandonment, you have a fear of being having people leave you, mm -hmm. which is what happens when you get in a relationship. It mm -hmm. triggers, it kicks up all that stuff that you had as a kid, and then all that floods into the relationship. So it's the fear of having someone disconnect. Your mother was an alcoholic, so she was her primary relationship was alcohol, not mm -hmm. you, not your father. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an illness. I'm not criticizing your mother. That's the way it was for her. Um, but it wasn't good for you. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, so when you're, when you're born and you have fear of mommy not coming to the crib, you can't survive. An infant can't survive without a parent. So there's primal abandonment fear that infants have. They feel the terror if mommy's not there. They feel, mm -hmm. they scream in the middle of the night and then mommy comes to the side of the crib, mommy or the nurse or daddy, somebody comes to the side of the crib and the child. But as the child gets older, the child says, let me see if I can bring mommy to the side of the crib. If I'm, if I giggle and coo and make cute noises, or if I cry, maybe I can start to manage my world, sort of control my world. And Sometimes you can, you scream and your parent comes running. Look what I did. I brought my parent to, to come to me. But other times you scream, nothing happens. Other times you coo and you go goo, 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 and you do your best patty cake and nobody smiles and nobody comes. And that's going to happen in an alcoholic family because they're not, they're not sober. So they, they don't respond properly. So the child acquires the feeling of being powerless and not being enough and just being you know, disposable and not worthy of the love and attention. 
Mm-hmm. And these feelings are very, children don't have words. There's no language for this. This is an undifferentiated feeling, a free floating kind of feeling of not feeling good about yourself. Mm-hmm. So self-esteem that I'm, that I'm talking about, and I presume Peter Yelton was talking about because he's, he's thinks in a very primal way. It is that, it is that primal feeling of not being enough, of just not not having worth other looking at other people and seeing that they can do things you can't do, or they have charisma that you don't have, or they have something you don't have that feeling of not being up to par. It's very primal. It it formed before we had language. So it's a feeling. It's Mm -hmm. not a judgment. It's not an intellectual decision. It's a feeling. Mm -hmm. And so when you have abandonment trauma, it plants that drain And that drain means that, all right, so you go jogging every day to build. So then you can say, I jog today and I deserve (laughs) self-esteem. So you can feel good about yourself for about 10 minutes. But then that wears off and you need to find something else to do to build that up again. You can't spend your whole day jogging and winning contests and so because the invisible drain, no matter how many esteemable things you do, Mm. is always draining it away so that's the need for abandonment recovery to really heal the primal wound to plug that drain to plug that drain (laughs) so i want to talk about your five stages of abandonment now would this be applicable for anybody who experiences abandonment or just for us fucked up adult child folks? <laughs> no, you don't have to be fucked up to uh, to go through this swirl, the five stages of abandonment, shattering, withdrawal, internalizing, rage, and lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a universal uh, direction that the grief takes. It's very logical. First, mm-hmm. you feel the shattering of your hopes and dreams. And this could happen on a first date when you thought, gee, I think there, I think I feel a connection. But yes, yes. you don't get a return phone call, you know, so oh. it can happen. And your life is things. over and your life yes. is over and you're never going to have another person ever interested right. in you for the rest and of your life. <laughs> for, for the whole day you thought, oh my God, I think I've made a connection. And then, oh, it's, you know, oh. all that sense of future is torn away. So it can be a very minor event that causes it. But anyway, shattering is the loss of that connection. And it's just what it says. It shatters it. it you're shattered. And if it's a big relationship, a big attachment, mm-hmm. it can bring you to your knees. You could have, you know, suicidal feelings. It, it can really, really bring you to a state of crisis and, and a, an emotional emergency. Then withdrawal is when you start to yearn for what you're lost. Let's say you got fired. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. You lost your job. You got fired. And you're yearning for your job. You, it's the only thing you had. And it's, it was your whole life. And now you've been fired and you feel, you yearn, you wish you had, you want it back. Or it's a person and you yearn for them. So there's, it's only natural to go from feeling shattered to wanting mm-hmm. that thing, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Then internalizing mm-hmm. is where you blame it on yourself. You see what an asshole I am. I did this to myself. Oh, if only I weren't so worthless. If only I had more whatever charm or if, if only I, if only I, I had used a period, if only I'd used a period instead of an exclamation point in that last yes. text message. <laughs> yes, exactly. All the regrets. So it's, it's the taking what happened and blaming the rejection against yourself. And when you beat yourself up with, feeling rejected, whether it's a firing or losing a relationship or whatever, it you can inflict a very severe depression that can look just like major depression. You can well, go into a therapist at this stage and look like somebody who needs to be hospitalized or mm-hmm. she or he may think you're a very unstable person, but people going through swirl only appear unstable it's a very painful process and internalizing is, is the most painful of all stages because you're really hating yourself. And it's also when the wound becomes infected mm. and it forms, the infection forms scarring 
And the scarring is damage to your self-esteem. So when you emerge from the abandonment, ultimately, you're not without a wound. You have a scar. And the scar is you've lost some self-esteem. That's what, what, that's what happens when we go through abandonment. Of course, we build it up again through techniques that are very um, workable. But anyway, internalizing is the middle stage when the wound can become infected because you're beating yourself up, you're wounding yourself. Then the next four, stage four is rage, where a part of you says, wait a minute, it's not all my fault. Who do they think they are? And you start turning it back out again. And you ask, do most people go through this? Or, you know, is it just us fucked up people? Um, <laughs> the answer is, no, we all do, because all of us beat ourselves up and then say, wait a minute, and start to take the other person to task. It's just a natural reaction. So these stages are inevitably following one another. So in rage, we start to realize what the other person or the job or whatever, how they contributed. But usually we're so um, wounded by the abandonment that we can't take our anger directly out on that person. Some of us can, some of us can't. At least we can't when we're sober. That's where a lot of alcohol comes in. Abandonment is, is a time when people become alcoholic. Mm-hmm. If you go to an AA meeting, you will see abandonment survivors. The whole damn place, the whole damn because room. Alcohol <laughs> medicates abandonment. It medicates mm-hmm. it not well, but it medicates it. Doesn't heal it, but it makes it worse. But it takes the pain pain away. So in rage, there's it's very very uncomfortable, and you want to. Um, direct your rage toward the person who hurt you. But very often we wind up taking it out on our friends mm. because our friends say stupid things like just let go and move forward or that, which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And then we want to kill them. And the rage comes out at them. because They just don't get it. And then the final stage is lifting. And that's when, life is so fantastic and bountiful that we have moments when we laugh and when we notice beautiful flowers blooming or we we start to get drawn into life again. But the thing is that when we start to lift out of the abandonment from the swirl process, we have to take our feelings with us and nurture them because otherwise we become more callous. And then if we do become callous from the abandonment, you, we all know people who are callous from going through abandonment. They're sort of dead-eyed and they're a little numb and less sensitive because mm-hmm. they've doled out in order to cope with it. Well, that's not the way to go. The way to go is to be in intact feelings. So if you allow yourself to be callous, you're likely to develop a pattern where you're only attracted to unavailable people because pain and insecurity you can feel Mm. and you think that's love but you can't feel like just being loved you can't just feel mutual love because you're too callous so you need to be charged up by a a challenge a pursuit Mm -hmm. and it has to be potentially painful and anxiety producing otherwise you you have a hard time feeling it because of all the callousing and that's the swirl process Mm. (laughs) <laughs> I, I i have no experience with that <laughs> no none at all of course not it's, it's interesting though when you talk about i feel like for me i don't identify so much with the rage phase um i don't i mean for me when you say like lashing out at friends for me it was and i don't know if this qualifies but for me it was like more so just being like just so needy and like an emotional vampire with my friends, but not necessarily like raging out on them, but just like, yeah, just being an emotional vampire. And when that kept happening over and over again, and I didn't seem to be learning my lesson, you know, those people started to pull away from me. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't think of anything where I was really like, lashing out at others i mean can that come in other forms the rage phase 
Well, a lot of people are too rational to have a lot of rage. Mm. Um, there are plenty of very rational people. You know, rage is secondary. Pain is underneath and then rage. Mm-hmm. So if, if, I, if, a, if a rock drops out of the sky onto your foot, you're going to be, damn it, you know, it hurts. So the response is rage mm-hmm. to pain. But the rage is secondary. The primary is pain. So not everybody is irrational enough to really feel angry. Mm. And if they, the, some people just don't, don't get there. And of course you'll find, you know, therapists, some therapists will say, Oh, you need to feel your anger. No, some people just don't, that's just not part of their personality. So and another factor is children go through swirls. So mm-hmm. um, when children go through shattering and withdrawal wanting and yearning and not being able to get you describe that a lot in your childhood and then internalizing and questioning and shame and feeling self-doubt and all of that and then the rage it there, there could be a rage expressed just by sort of not taking good care of yourself just kind of like negligence and then lifting where you get distracted Mm-hmm. But you tend, children tend to whatever stage they get stuck in the most is the stage they'll have the biggest problem with when they get to adult, when they go through an, a swirl in adulthood. Mm. So if in my case, I went, I had a tremendous amount of withdrawal because my parents didn't give me what I needed and internalizing because they were rejecting and critical. So when I went through my abandonment, I had the worst yearning and pining for my ex you could ever imagine. Yeah. And I was absolutely, my self-esteem was absolutely on the ground. In your case, because of what you described, I, I don't know. This, this is withdrawal wild, for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Withdrawal. Definitely. Withdrawal because you were, you're, you had a parent who was, you know, the, it's the case of the disappearing parent. The parent is there physically, mm-hmm. but not emotionally, inconsistently mm-hmm. emotionally. So it creates emotional hunger. And you look to feed that emotional hunger with people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. So if you then go through abandonment as an adult, your friends are right there. People, people, places, and things, alcohol, and friends. And of course, you were in recovery. So Mm -hmm. what outlets do you have so it's it all it all kind of fits together Mm -hmm. you know when you have when your parents are alcoholic when this might this i'm about to make a statement that's a little extreme do it and so it's not so you have to kind of take my statement and then tone it down a little bit but what i'm about to say is that it's almost easier if the parent is dead That sounds so harsh and so, but the reason is because when the, when the parent is absolutely absent, well, then there's nobody looming up in the role of parent to remind you of what you wish you could get from them. It's not like, oh, there's my mother or my father and oh, now I can hug and get my warmth and nurturance and because the person isn't there. But when you have an alcoholic parent, you know, the disappearing parent, they're there physically. Mm -hmm. So they're reminding you of all the things you need from them, but they're not there emotionally. Mm -hmm. So it was a very big exaggeration to say that it would be better if they were dead, easier, easier on the child. So I was trying to emphasize a point. I know what you mean. It's just that I work with children whose parents had died versus children who were children of alcoholics. And I could see the, the, all the differences there. And the children of parents who are alcoholics have a whole series of challenges. And it manifests in many ways that come out when they're about in the fourth and fifth grade. <laughs> they, they start to have behaviors. Oh, yeah. Me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They do. It starts at, at around 10 or 11. And, um, me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- that it is very difficult to be a child of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So you talked about just kind of all this research that you did and looking at the neuroscience and all of that stuff. But what did 
aside from, you know, researching and gaining knowledge, what did the healing process look like for you? Um, the uh, primary, uh, I, I, the program consists of a series of exercises that are very hands-on mm-hmm. and they're designed to promote change. You know, change is very difficult. Yes. Very easy to analyze ourselves and look in the mirror deeply and all that, but to change, that's very hard. So the research wasn't just trying to understand what I was going through and what other people go through. It was trying to understand how to tinker with that mechanism, how to promote change. So I used all of my own exercises. And one exercise was a visualization exercise that put positive imagery in the brain. You don't have to believe the image. Some, some of these programs want you to believe something. No, no, no. There's no abandonment survivors have no faith. You know, they're, they're so <laughs> hopeless. You can't ask them to believe something. And I, I was that way. So, and am mm-hmm. that way. I need to just have a very pragmatic approach. So the visualization, pretending about an image up in your mind and putting it up there three or four times a day, just for a few seconds at a time, just having a nice image to go to. And if the image is in the future and it's a, it's a positive future image, that promotes change. I know it sounds um, a little fantastical, but it does. And then another exercise that I did a great deal of and getting into the moment and getting into the moment every chance I could and staying in the moment strengthened my brain. It gave me a tremendous amount of strength um, for dealing with things. But um, the big little exercise, separation therapy, dividing myself into big me, the adult me, and little me, which is It's like the inner child that people are familiar with, but it's really the inner child within the inner child. Hmm. It's a really, it's more, it's an inner child that only consists of your feelings and your needs, all only what you want, what you need, what you feel, your fears, your hurts, only the feelings. Whereas I've, taken a lot of inter, inner child, you know, training and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the inner child uh, traditionally is more of, you know, more of a total personality. This is just the feelings. My little, little you is the feelings. I didn't invent little you. It was invented by Richard Robertiello. Um, and, but it's this, it's my version of the inner child. It's retooled in order to make it get into the abandonment wound. So in, creating um, a dynamic relationship between the adult you and this abandoned inner child, this inner child within the inner child, little you, by creating that relationship, you get to give yourself love. You get to actually do things, not just feel things and think things and write things, but do things, little baby steps from your adult self to your inner child to prove that you're going to take care of that child better. Mm -hmm. You're going to do new things. You're going to try new things. You're going to take little tiny baby steps. So um, that relationship inculcates self-love for real, for real. It actually puts it there. It's work intensive. It's not like it happens overnight. You have to work it. It's a, it's an ongoing tool, but I, I use that tool and I complete, I developed a, a relationship with myself that I never had before. You know, the, the pain of abandonment is thwarted attachment energy. All this attachment energy wants to attach to an object, you know, it's all going toward an object and then that object isn't there. So it's thwarted all that attachment energy. But this exercise allows that attachment energy to make yourself the object of your attachment. I know that sounds very technical and all of that, but honestly, in practice, it's, it really is pragmatic. You know, you hear a lot about um, PTSD, complex PTSD. 
for me, I, I simply, for me, I, I, that's a new term for me from the, in the past five years or so. Uh-huh. But the term for me is post-traumatic stress disorder of abandonment, that the abandonment trauma is the complex. That's what mm-hmm. creates that it's a more chronic situation. And the exercise takes that, that abandoned child that has been with you since infancy and has accumulated, and it just goes in and starts to heal those layers. So you don't change completely. Mm-hmm. I am still just as human as I always was. I can identify with almost any emotion anybody anybody says, almost any behavior. I, I have it all. But I have it all in a way that I embrace. I cherish my emotions. It's very different because I have made a connection on a very deep level with this part of me that is the part that feels Mm -hmm. and so that's what did it that that was what the research led to so has there been an experience since then and since you've done this healing work of abandonment that like i'm i'm sure that you've experienced it since then and what was that experience like for you compared to in the past well, the most amazing thing is about a year after my abandonment, I was, I loved my, my husband so much. I didn't mm-hmm. think I'd ever, ever feel anything even close to that ever again. Mm-hmm. The, what we had was hot. And it was just the coolest relationship. But the next, within a year, I started to feel um, attached to a man who wasn't even an abandoner, which is, Sometimes people laugh when I say that because imagine being attracted <laughs> no, to someone I, I know. who didn't have abandonment. I mean, it's, it's, but it's weird. I'm not saying it to be funny. I know. Like, what? no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and everybody listening it gets it. <laughs> he wasn't selfish enough as a person uh-huh. to ever leave someone because it would hurt them. So if he's going to get involved in a relationship, he's not going to walk away just because it would make him happier. Um, he, so I had this beautiful, beautiful new love and I was able to love and trust him on a level even more deeply than what I felt before. Uh And we were together for nine years, living together and putting our, pooling our resources and doing everything together, living together. And then he died Mm. of cancer and it wasn't abandonment. It was a different kind of loss. Mm. The abandonment aspect that creates a personal injury, shrapnel explodes inside. This was more like a scalpel, a sterilized scalpel. It was painful. Mm. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, of course. I'm, I'm not underplaying what it was, but it was different And there's almost always some abandonment in grieving a death. That's what makes grieving a death so complicated and so painful. So, of course, there was, but I had tools to kind of work with that. Mm. So that is my practical example. (laughs) Wow. Um, And then, so then how old were your kids when you got divorced? Uh. They were 20 and 18. Okay. And then, so there wasn't like much co-parenting left to be done then? No. Um, yeah. There was some. Mm-hmm. It was very, they were very broken up about it. I mean, it was a big trauma because we were such a wonderful mm-hmm. family unit. And then to have their mother, me, be just like a dish rag mm-hmm. was very difficult. But Yes, they were old enough to not need co-parenting like that. And so was there ever any mending your relationship with him? Well, I've never stopped respecting him. Mm-hmm. I've always seen he, he was amazing, amazing, just a credible person and mm-hmm. talented and gifted in so many ways. And I still see him that way. And we have very warm, friendly 
conversations where I would say we're friends because mm-hmm. we've worked it through. Mm-hmm. Man, this conversation is feeding my soul <laughs> so much. So what are you working on now? I'm reaching, I'm sort of in an, in an, I think similar to you, I'm in an evangelistic period of my life because I feel um, that the, the tools of the program are helpful. Mm-hmm. So I try to share them and run workshops and, you know, get the word out whenever I can. And it gives me a very great sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, um, where I'm at, very personally is the moment it's I think the pandemic has helped with this a little bit living my life with an appreciation and gratitude in the moment for just being alive and just being on the planet Mm -hmm. and getting into the moment sounds so easy but it's really it takes a tremendous effort (laughs) I am so easily distracted for hours so that is what I'm really working on, is taking a moment and saying, oh, let me just feel the skin, you know, circulating on my cheeks so that I can just get into the moment for a second. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and that's, that's my, that's where I'm at. And then are you constantly, um, you know, hosting workshops and events and stuff like that? or what? I have a whole bunch of workshops coming up. Um, and I'm also running online workshops, which I thought it would be a, a thing that would, you know, during the pandemic, I'd run a few workshops. They're unbelievable. I never thought mm-hmm. Zoom could mm-hmm. be so intimate, but there's a tremendous amount of sharing. They really are. I'm very pleased with them. And I'm, I'm on session two this week with my, my seventh series of Zoom workshops. And so how many people are in this group? Well, um, as many people as fill the screen. So yeah. it's usually like 25 maximum. Uh-huh. So we juggle around just a little bit to make sure we see everybody. Yeah. I also wonder too, if maybe somebody's willing to do the workshop because it is virtual and maybe they would feel too nervous to do it in person, not from a COVID perspective, but from like a, yeah, like a healing perspective, it seems which I had less never, scary. I had never thought about because a lot of people come to the workshops in person when they were running. Um, I, I have a bunch of in-person workshops coming up finally. Hopefully, they won't get canceled. Um, but they come with their, their, you know, a lot of apprehension. Mm-hmm. But it wears off. We get relaxed and comfortable so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will include all of your stuff in the show notes. I've mentioned oh, your I've mentioned your workbook in the past. Um, so it's so good, and I just love this conversation. And um, I'm so glad we got to connect. Well, I this was a really great interview. Thank you so much. Your questions were fabulous. It got me to talk my head off. Baby, come back. You can blame it on. up today's episode was that not good guys was that not good you are welcome that was a really awesome conversation go and check out her books i definitely want to have her back on but that abandonment recovery workbook is spot on and actually maybe something uh you guys patreon peeps maybe that is a book that we could do together once we finish up um tian's book so thanks again to susan uh check out the show notes for all of her shit go follow her on social You can also find links to my social media in the show notes. I am uh, at Adult Child Pod on Instagram and TikTok. I also just want to say, you know, I am seeking sponsors for the podcast. And so if you have a small business or anything and you would be open to sponsoring um, an episode of the podcast, I would really love that. (laughs) So please hit me up on Instagram or you can email me at Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. What else? I don't think I have anything else for you guys. 
Um, I will see you guys next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super raw. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.